Thank you, David, for that. And thank you also to Ruth for her update uh, from India. It was great to hear about that recent trip. Just before I, I come to the passage which we've read there a moment ago, I want to flag up a couple of things for you, one of which is in our bulletin and one of which I've heard about just today. Uh, in our bulletin there, you'll see a paragraph on the penultimate page talking about the tea that we have after our evening services. If you're here with us regularly, you'll know that we, we have a, a habit of staying back and enjoying uh, a cup of tea together. It's one of the things I, I love most about Sunday evening worship is that uh, leisurely time to, to just be together and enjoy one another's company. In order for that to work, we need people to, to do it, to provide the cup of tea and coffee, and we'd like to share that around a bit to make sure that there aren't one or two people who are burdened with that over and over again. We do have a rota for that, so if you're here this evening and would be willing to get involved in that in the future, please add your name to the rota that's there on the table. Uh, I have in the announcement there that training will be given. I know I couldn't do it without training. Uh, I can't speak for you. Maybe, maybe you could. Um, but yeah, training will be given to those who need it. We're going to be thinking just for a few moments here this evening again about prayer uh, and looking at two prayers here from uh, this passage in Luke's Gospel. But before we do that, I'd like to ask you to pray for a family in our congregation. Just this afternoon, I heard of a death of Norman Castles. Norman would probably have been in his early 40s. He is the father of two primary school-aged children, Hannah, who's eight years old, and Calvin, who's five. Um, His wife, Jeanette, uh, understandably, is, is just lost. I just want you to pray for those people. Uh, Jeanette Castles, if you can remember that name, and be praying for her this week. That would be great. Let's pray together just now. Father God, we pray that you would come and be present among us by your Spirit. Lord, as we have shared this news of Jeanette and her family's loss, we just pray that you would come to her. Lord, by your Spirit, guide us and prompt us. Give us the prayers that we can pray on her behalf. And we pray now that you would come to us, Father, as we come and gather around your word and as we think about prayer. Lord, your word is always uh, demanding. Uh, It always needs our very best to understand it and certainly to live it out. But Lord, particularly when we come to think of prayer, we feel so helpless and so inadequate. Would you come by your spirit and teach us those things that we should know? and enable us in those places where we're weak. Lord, make our very weakness a strength in your hands, we pray. 
Amen. We are disciples of Jesus Christ, and so we stand in continuity with all those who have ever responded to the call of Jesus, come and follow me. We stand with Andrew and with Peter and with James and John and all those uh, who have followed Jesus since. On one occasion, Jesus' first disciples famously asked him a question. They asked for his help. They said, Lord, teach us to pray. They didn't know how to pray. They needed help, and they knew it. And are we not like the disciples in this regard? If there's one area of our our life with God that most of us would confess that we struggle with, I'd suspect this would be right up there at the top of the list. We struggle to pray. We don't know how to do it, and when we do it, we're, we're not sure that we're doing it well. We stand with the disciples this evening, and we too say, Lord, teach us to pray. Tonight, we're going to continue with a short three-part Advent series that we began last week, and we're going to be focusing on prayer, and our text for these three reflections is simply the first two chapters of Luke's Gospel. We noticed last week that these early chapters are full of references to the Holy Spirit. Nothing much of significance happens here unless the Holy Spirit's involved. John the Baptist, he's conceived when the Holy Spirit is miraculously at work. Jesus is conceived when the Holy Spirit is miraculously at work. When, it's when the Spirit falls on the other characters that they do their significant actions. So it seems like Luke wants to, to flag up for us that everything of significance here happens only when the Spirit of God does it. But we noticed as well that these early chapters are full of examples of people praying, and we've decided we're going to spend this Advent season looking at their prayers. There are five in these first two chapters. I've already mentioned the occasion when Jesus' disciples asked for help with prayer, And that's become a very instructive moment for subsequent followers of Jesus Christ. Well, if their question became instructive to us, his reply even more so. Because it was when they asked that question that Jesus replied with what we have come to know as the Lord's Prayer. I want you to to think of the Lord's Prayer and to notice just one line at this moment. As soon as Jesus had addressed the Father, as soon as he had praised him, Jesus said, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. The first thing that Jesus does in prayer is he submits himself to the will of God. We can't pray unless we pray in submission. Prayer always starts by coming before God and saying, right, Lord, although I'm coming to pray, it really is your will that I'm interested in here, not my own agendas or my own desires. And we noticed that actually in the first of our five Advent prayers last week when we looked at Mary's short prayer in chapter 1, verse 38, her fiat mihi. It says there, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. 
The first prayer, submission. Whatever you want, Lord, is fine by me. Lucinda, could you maybe pop up the slide there that shows the five prayers of, of Luke's gospel? We looked at the first last week, and we're going to look at the next two this evening. The second, the Magnificat, is also a prayer of Mary's, which we just read. And then the third, the Benedictus, is a prayer of Zacharias. So we're going to focus on those uh, next couple of prayers here this evening. Mary, by this stage, has left the, the familiar surroundings of Nazareth, where, where she's grown up. And she's made a journey south into the Judean hill country to visit with her cousin Elizabeth. Luke doesn't tell us exactly where Elizabeth lives, but it's quite likely that it was somewhere within striking distance of Jerusalem because her husband Zechariah works there in the temple. So it's probably about 80 miles or so, almost directly due south from Nazareth, that Mary's made this journey. Mary's gone, and I think she's expecting to find maybe the one person in the world who will understand what's going on in her life. The one person who might get it when she starts talking about a baby conceived of the Holy Spirit. You see, at the same moment when Gabriel gave Mary the news that she was going to have a baby, he also told her about Elizabeth. This aged cousin of hers who was also going to conceive a a baby miraculously. So I think Mary had probably some sense that there'd be something of a connection when she called with Elizabeth, this other mother-to-be. But I don't think anything could have prepared her for the warmth of reception that she got when she arrived with Elizabeth. As soon as Elizabeth saw young Mary at the door, she just, she said, come on in. Mary, it's great to see you. You're blessed. That child you're going to bear is blessed. I can't believe that you'd come and visit someone like me. As soon as I heard your voice, the baby in my womb turned a somersault. You're blessed, Mary, because you've believed what God has said to you. Luke tells us, actually in verse 41, why it was that Elizabeth was able to respond with such insight and with such vigor. It's because she was filled with the Holy Spirit. That's why she's filled with joy. That's why the baby in her womb turns cartwheels. The Holy Spirit, who's conceiving in a new life in her, is connecting with the Holy Spirit, who is at work in Mary. It's this connection made by the Holy Spirit of God that leads to this incredible and spontaneous outburst of joy. Folks, I think we have far too small an idea of what Christian fellowship is. I think we imagine that Christian fellowship is based on some shared beliefs. Here we are, a bunch of people who believe some of the same things about Jesus. That's the basis of our Christian fellowship. Or maybe we imagine that it's, it's based on just our common membership in a particular local congregation. We happen to be here at this point in time 
So that's the basis of our fellowship. I think we see here, in this meeting of Mary and Elizabeth, maybe just a wonderful image of what Christian fellowship is. Real Christian fellowship is when the Spirit of God in one person connects with the Spirit of God in another. When one person who is alive in Christ bumps into and meets with another person who is alive in Christ, the real presence of God's Spirit in one sparks with the the person, the, the other. If you've experienced this at all, you'll know immediately what I'm talking about. Christian fellowship. It means that people who meet for the very first time can have just a wonderful interaction because they have this huge, huge thing in common, the presence of God's Holy Spirit in them. It means that I could get on a plane this evening and travel to the other side of the world to a totally different culture, to people with whom I have nothing in common, and yet find that I have everything and the deepest thing in common because I've got the Spirit and so has this brother or sister in Christ. Folks, it's when the Spirit in one of us connects with the Spirit in another. I think that's probably as good a definition of Christian fellowship as any I can offer you this evening. And by the way, it's nothing all that unusual. I have it all the time in church life here. Sometimes I have it on a Sunday evening over a cup of tea. When the Spirit in one connects with the Spirit in another. A wonderful moment. A gift from God. It's in this warm, Spirit-inspired welcome from Elizabeth that, that Mary's second prayer, her Magnificat, is birthed. She prays in response to this welcome that she's had from Elizabeth. And, and before she prays even, even a few lines, we realize that this young girl knows her family story. She knows Holy Scripture. She knows the ways in which God has been at work in the generations that have gone before her in the last 2,000 years. Actually, when you look at Mary's prayer, we see that she's breached copyright. She's taken a prayer that has been prayed before. Hannah prayed a prayer. Whenever God heard the prayers of her years and her years and her years and gave her a baby, a son, Samuel. And this is it. Reworded, revamped, but it's all there. Mary knows her family history. She's re-praying Hannah's prayer in, in the words that God gives her. Mary's prayer, just like Hannah's before it, is all about reversal. Three great reversals are here. It's a prayer that speaks of how God turns life upside down entirely. The first reversal in verse 51, He has performed mighty deeds with His arm. He scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. 
God undermines the proud. Those who strut around and make a big deal of their power and their running of this world, he undermines them. And he says, I'm on the throne. There's the first reversal. The second we find in verse 52, he's brought down rulers from their thrones, but he has lifted up the humble. God takes the people at the top and he sets them to the bottom, takes those from the bottom and lifts them to the top. And the final reversal comes in verse 53. He's filled the hungry with good things, but he sent the rich away empty. In the world where God is at work, the proud and the powerful and the rich are reduced and the downtrodden and the poor are lifted up. The deprived are satisfied. There's a revolution here. Now, it's God's kind of revolution, not mine or yours, but there's a revolution. God turns the world upside down. Folks, if we took seriously Mary's prayer and prayed it this evening, we'd enter from the world as we normally see it into the real world, the world as God sees it. You see, God looks at the world and he's not all that impressed by Gordon Brown and George Bush and the power that they wield. It actually isn't that big of a deal to him. He can reduce them at the drop of a hat. God looks at Bill Gates and all the other wealthy people of our world and again, it means nothing to him. He can take all that away in a moment if he chooses to. And God looks at humble, ordinary people and he says, you're the, you're the big shots. You're the people I can make something of in this world. Particularly if you're open to me and the things that I would do. People like Mary and her old cousin Elizabeth. Ordinary, everyday people. People like us. You see, Mary's prayer, I think, helps us to see that that small people can be right at the center of God's plans for the world. We're not on the sidelines. We're center stage. It's enough to make you you want to stand up and sing, to to know that we're not insignificant, to know that we aren't on rung zero of life, but to know that under God... We're significant, and we have a place. It's enough to make you want to stand up and sing, and we're going to do that just now. Last week, we spent some time praying one of Mary's prayers, but tonight, we're going to take a moment to sing this one, because the Magnificat has been put to music uh, wonderfully. I haven't warned the musicians, but I'll talk on for a couple of seconds to, to let them find their place. There's a song that we sing very often, and and it's basically Mary's prayer. Tell out my soul the greatness of the Lord. Look out for these themes that we've been thinking of and pray this prayer to God. Let's do that as we stand and sing.
we're going to spend just a few minutes looking at the, the second prayer of Zacharias, literally five minutes, and then we'll close our service for this evening. The second prayer there you'll find in verses 68 to 79 of Luke chapter 1. And the background to this prayer actually makes up the bulk of chapter 1 of Luke's gospel. We read some of it last week and some of it this evening, so I'll, I'll try to point it all out to you just in a second here. Zechariah is an elderly priest, and one day when he was serving at a temple, at the temple in Jerusalem, the angel Gabriel appeared to him and told him that his elderly wife Elizabeth was going to have a baby. The baby was going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and he was going to somehow prepare the way for the Lord. Now, sure enough, when Zechariah went home after his temple duty, Elizabeth fell pregnant. When the time came for her to have her baby, she gave birth to a son, and the whole community celebrated with her. Everything went swimmingly until the the day of the, the circumcision and the naming of the baby, because everybody in the community assumed that he was going to be called Zechariah. Firstborn son in a Jewish community, it was a no-brainer. This, you know, the name was on the birth certificate before anybody had even thought about it. He's always going to be called Zechariah after his dad. So whenever Elizabeth comes and she said, no, uh, we're going to call him John, everyone was a, a little bit amazed by that. They turned to Zechariah to see what he had to say on the matter. Well, actually, they knew that he'd have nothing to say on the matter because Zechariah hadn't said a word for nine months now. Ever since he'd been on that last bit of temple duty, he'd come home and he'd been struck dumb. They asked him what he'd like the child to be called and he he reached for his writing tablet and everyone watched as he formed the letter slowly. His name is John. And it's precisely at that moment that the power of speech is returned to Zechariah. Everyone who was party to these events thought it was really incredible, and they were talking about it all around, as you can imagine. So now we turn to Zechariah's prayer, his benedictus, as it's been called in the history of the church. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Think of it. He's been speechless for nine months. These words have been in him as long as John has been growing in Elizabeth's womb. There's a giving birth here. He gives birth to to a prayer. Isn't it wonderful that his first words after nine months, the first thing that he does is to pray. And he bursts into a, a prayer of praise. He blesses God for his faithfulness, for keeping his covenant with Abraham. He blesses the God who kept his promise to David. He blesses the God who's bringing salvation to his people as he told the prophets. And then he does an incredible thing. He prophesies over his own wee son. He brings his own son into the company of the prophets. 
This eight-day-old, he makes him into a prophet. He said, you will be called a prophet of the Most High. He will go before the Lord to prepare the way for him. It's brilliant stuff. As we're listening to Zechariah, you could be listening to Isaiah, the prophet. Salvation is on its way. Whenever we join Zechariah and pray the kind of prayer that he prays here, we join with all the people through history who've known God's story, who have been waiting for him to keep his promises. We find ourselves praising God that he's been faithful to the promises to Abraham, to David, and to the prophets. Whenever we join with Zechariah in prayer, we join in with all of those people with the people whom God has used to work his will in this world and those he will use. You see, there's a huge company of people stretching all the way back to Abram in the past, stretching I don't know how far and you don't either into the future. It's the company of those who have been the people of God, those who have found their way in the salvation story. It's a company of moms and dads, of prophets and priests, of friends and neighbors, of children and young people. This is the community of God's people. Whenever we pray Zechariah's prayer, we join with all those who have gone before us, all those who will come after us, And we pray along with them, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We began here this evening remembering the the question of the disciples, Lord, teach us to pray. And this evening, as we have looked at God's word together, and in particular these prayers of Mary and Zechariah, we have been taught more of the life of prayer. We've been reminded in Mary's prayer that God turns the world upside down. That we don't need to be powerful and influential to be heard by God because he's a God who lifts the humble and the poor. We've been reminded here as we look at Zechariah's prayer of the great story of salvation of the countless people who have gone before us And we're reminded that we can find our place in that story. If only we'll offer ourselves to God. Let's take a moment in the silence with our Bibles open in front of us. Luke chapter 1. Those two prayers, the prayer of Mary and of Zechariah. And let's, in our own words, in our own thoughts, offer prayers to God. Let us pray.
Father God, we thank you that you are a God who takes rulers from thrones and lifts the humble. We find huge encouragement in this because we are a humble people. Lord, help us to know that none of us is insignificant. None of us beyond the call of Jesus. Father God, we thank you that you have never let your people down. You've kept the promises you made to Abraham and to David. The word of the prophets you have have made true. Lord, we thank you for this long company of people who have experienced your salvation. And Lord, now we want to find our part in this. We want to find our place in this community of your people. Lord, come to us. Meet with us. Reassure us of your place, our place in your family and in your plans for this world. Lord, we thank you for these wonderful prayers. And we offer these prayers to you here this evening. We do it in Jesus' name. Amen.